Today, we are all about the bad girls, the femme fatales that transformed the comics industry and later the movie industry. You know their names. I'm talking Witchblade, She, Lady Death, Evangeline, Glory, Vampirilla, later Kill Bill, Underworld, Resident Evil. It was the time when, when women took over. The women warriors ruled the charts and saved the comics industry. And we talk about it on an all-new episode of Observations. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. This is the show where we talk about all the comic books and all the pop culture and all the ways they have been mashed up into a giant pop culture comic book stew. Think about it. You know it. Comic book superheroes, you never used to see them every single day, every second of your life. And now that's what you're getting on the regular. It's a diet. It's a diet, whether you're streaming the shows, watching the pay-per-views, whether they're on, you know, your, your, uh, your Amazon Prime, you know, free account, whether, whether it's something you're renting, whether it's a ticket you're buying to get to the, to the cinema this weekend to see yet another giant superhero movie. They have jumped off the shelves. They are plushies. They are, they are pop funkos. They're toys. They're, they're lunch pails. Yes, those still exist. They're shirts. They're apparel. They're everywhere. We talk about them here. I have been in love with comic books for 48 plus years. They have dominated my life. They, they inspired me to make a living writing and drawing comics of which I have written and drawn and produced hundreds of comics, thousands of pages. It is my life's passion, and I love sharing it with you guys here on Rob's Observation. We're going to get right to our subject today, which is a fun one. It's one I've, I've danced around in, in, the, in the past, but it's time to just land on it, just square, boom, bullseye. And that is an era that seemed to dominate about five years of the comics industry. And like so many of, of, of some of the most interesting topics, I was fortunate to be in the sphere, you know, uh, be, be kind of, you know, in, in the mix while this was going as a publisher, as a creator, as an artist, and as a writer. But when we say and talk and speak of bad girls of comics, it covers many decades, not just the period we're going to talk now, but this period that we're going to discuss today, really the late 90s, is when bad girls exploded, bad girl comics exploded. What are bad girl comics? Who are the standouts of, of the bad girl era? Because certainly, I, I, I have to tell you, when I look back at that period now, I, I, I have to wonder if any of those books would fly in the same way that they're flying now, uh, given that we live in just a completely different age of awareness. I, I wouldn't even use the word tolerance. It's awareness. Some people are aware, don't care, okay? Some people are aware and they want new uh, new applications, uh, you know, in, in regards to to guidelines of, of what is and what is not acceptable. This was a free-for-all age. An absolute free for, for all age. And I, I got to be honest, it was really when the genie came out of the bottle. The, the existence of bad girls in, in, at the forefront of the comic book marketplace certainly goes back to, in my mind, beyond the pinup girls, beyond, beyond the pinup uh, uh, age, the, 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 the Betty Page, all that stuff, um, you know, circa 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. 
the modern day, the modern day bad girl can be traced directly to a, a magazine character, a very, uh, I would say, R-rated, suggestive, um, titillating figure that was introduced in 1969. Yes, I do get the joke in that year. 1969 was the year that Vampirilla, Vampirilla, uh, jumped to the fore. Warren Publications uh, delivered Vampirilla to the masses. In, in magazine adventures, and we're still talking about Vampirilla to this day, so I, th- so I think Vampirilla stuck. I think Vampirilla, you know, delivered. Now, Vampirilla would go on to have several resurgences over this period, and one of them is in this 90s period. But uh, Vampirilla, interestingly enough, is, 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 is a big deal. Again, is, is a big part of this resurgence as we'll get to in, in, in the later parts. I don't want to, I don't want to jump, jump ahead of, 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 of the game here, but when Vampirilla was first introduced as a, uh, she's a vampiress, a fictional vampire superheroine. She was created by Forrest J. Ackerman and comic book artist Trina Robbins. And it was in the pages of Warren. I, they had black and white, uh, magazines I would come to interact with Warren on the regular on a on a magazine they had called The Rook, which was like a sci-fi cowboy, The Rook, and and that was also published by Warren. But I always knew of Vampirilla. But I've shared with you guys here that I had a hard enough time uh, conv- convincing my my uh, my my Baptist household, my Baptist minister father, and and my very demure mother that that like cutting edge master of kung fu comics could be allowed. In my uh, in my house, I mean, with with bare chested martial artists with tattoos brazen on their chest and arms, you know, battling it out with with nunchucks and, and battle staffs. For some reason, my mom earmarked that book, Master of Kung Fu. Oh, Robbie! Oh, Robbie! I don't know that you should be reading these now. Both Paul Galassi and Mike Zek were capable of drawing very masculine men and very sexy women. Lots of spies. I mean, Master of Kung Fu for all intents and purposes, was not the Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings movie that was released. Master of Kung Fu was beloved in the comic book industry because it was a hardcore uh, spy adventure. Shang-Chi was part of this group of kind of resistance fighters, among them spies, American and British, who were opposing his terrorist father. So it really had a spy tone with action, adventure, martial arts all over it. But if that was a book... Uh, that was hard to hide given that it had sexy spies and sexy female assassins. Vampirilla was never going to cut it in my household. Vampirilla was never going to make it from the grocery store. Now, the way I interacted with a lot of these magazines, the only other place that was selling the magazines outside of the liquor store, which again, my infamous liquor store on Magnolia and Broadway, God bless you, liquor store, and all of the wonderful comics you put in my hands, including Superman versus Muhammad Ali, the entire run of the champions, John Byrne's first uh, X-Men, some killer George Perez, uh, Avengers, Fantastic Force, all this stuff. That liquor store was the only other place that I ever saw the magazine uh, selection other than the regular grocery store, which was one we frequented called Alpha Beta. Yes, there was a grocery store chain here in Southern California called Alpha Beta. And when I went to Alpha Beta, that grocery store had a kick-ass magazine rack. I got to um, peruse and sometimes buy the Planet of the Apes Marvel magazine, the Six Million Dollar Man magazine, and I would look at Vampirilla and the Rook. But I always had to put Vampirilla back. I always had to put the Rook back. Couldn't buy them at that point in time. Had to kind of just take the 15, 20 minutes that I was going to get reading that stuff while my mom was going up and down the aisles, seeing what we could afford to 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 pour in and consume as many comic books as I possibly could. Comic book stories. 
Again, way too racy. Again, Vampirilla by, I mean, she just, she, I mean, right out in the open. I mean, she is uh, very titillating. Her original costume, I mean, she's got a basically red cloth, open red cloth bathing suit that barely covers um, the entirety of her breasts. Then an open, you know, navel, stomach, and then very high-waisted bikini kind of bottoms. It's it's a one-piece, though. And she has a collar. She, she, her, her design is, a, is amazing. It's kind of like a giant X if the X was stretched across the chest and then connected back down, you know, towards the bikini area. Vampirilla has had a wonderful, outstanding, incredible publishing history. Uh, the cover to Vampirilla number one is illustrated by none other than Frank Frazetta, one of the greatest fantasy illustrators of all space and time the cover of vampirilla number one uh is is uh, i i have to think especially given in the times of original art that we have right now uh given that it is a vampirilla number one and it is a frank frazetta painting would fetch a million dollars easy at the heritage you know at, at at heritage um auctions i mean this thing is is amazing she is sitting there in all her sexy glory with her hand fingers up to her mouth, it says, look out, she's waiting inside. The first edition collector's item is just for you. Captivating comics about fantastic females. Illustrated tales to bewitch and bedevil you. This Frank Frazetta cover is just as good then as it was now. And I, I mean, it's just as modern because Frank had not, had less of a round style, very angular, very modern, very, very much uh, looks like it would be something that would come out today and we'd be like, wow, this is like, the all new thing that we all need to bite off. He is his his work just completely transcends time. It is truly timeless work, and and this Vampirella cover is fantastic. Vampirella as a female vampire would have a lot of bloodletting, a lot of biting of necks, a lot of slashing of fingernails and claws, and other vampires and other supernatural uh, characters. But certainly, Vampirella is where I would track the original, what we would call the bad girl phenomenon, because she is so. I mean, very hard R-rated in just her appearance. Um, Most, I think, moms of 1979 are going to be like, "Hey, Billy, what are you looking at there?" It's it's it it falls just above kind of a soft porn category. Uh, It's 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 very 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 sexy, very adult, very sexy. But 1973 would arrive, and Marvel Comics would adapt Robert E. Howard of the Conan author of the Solomon Kane author of the Cole. King Cole author. He also had another uh, character that they published in February of 1973 named Red Sonia. Red Sonia is an absolute amazing female barbarian equivalent to Conan. Maybe not as popular, but in her adventures, in her capabilities, in her strength of character, she is absolutely the equivalent of, of Conan the Barbarian. Red Sonia wandered around the Hyborian Age, the same period that Conan was kicking ass and taking names. And doing so in a, you know, just a loincloth and a belt and a sword and a bare brazen chest. Again, Conan, super manly. Vampirella as confident in her femininity and her sexuality as Conan was in his. And then we get Red Sonia, who is equal. Equal to that. Again, I'm just trying to say, you know, we got, we got bare-chested men. Now, there's an entire podcast I did telling you that, you know, no shirts you know, no, no shoes, no service. Cause, cause these, these bare chested guys, Conan is the one who rose above all of them walking over the corpses of Kazar and Tarzan 
and Torak, uh, sorry, Korak and Tor and, uh, and Commandy, because he is the only bare chested guy that really seemed to, to click. But Red Sonya said, I'll one up you, Conan. I'm going to walk around the Hyborian Age battling all man- manner of pirates, uh, looters, villains, wizards, sorcerers, demons. I'm going to do it in a chainmail bikini. Her signature look is silver chainmail uh, bustier top and bikini bottoms. And, uh, her cherry red hair, red Sonya, instantly recognizable, uh, would go on to be a staple of Marvel's publishing on and off, even interacting with such greats as Spider-Man in Marvel Team Up uh, in the 70s. And she would she had great notoriety. Most kids my age knew, oh, Conan, Red Sonya. They went hand in hand. She appeared in the pages of Conan. She got her own spinoff series. I would say between Red Sonya and Vampirella, they were the queens of what we would call the dangerous femme fatales. Maybe maybe you don't like bad girls. Let's call them dangerous femme fatales. Whatever moniker fits, because they do portray a certain uh, manner of strength and sexuality. Well, the 80s would come, and I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of strong females, a lot of strong females are are launched. She-Hulk, Ms. Marvel, Spider-Woman. To stand alongside the already, you know, great line of strong females that Marvel had in Sue Storm, you know, Invisible Girl, Invisible Woman over at the Fantasy Four. Obviously, Scarlet Witch, which I'm going to get to in a minute because she, she I believe, starts stirring the pot for what's to come in the 90s. I think, well, Vampirilla and Red Sonja are the standouts. 1969, 1973, the, 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 the torch bearing for what's to come really starts here with one of the most successful comic book illustrators, writers, uh, talents in the history of the business, John Byrne, in the same year, he creates a dark Scarlet Witch in a saga called Wondagore Mountain, where she becomes possessed by a demon called Sithon and uh, takes, takes, you know, takes care of all the Avengers in an infamous cover where she is dangling them all upside down in, in, in a very ritualistic manner as she is casting her, her arms up to the heavens. And as she has become extremely evil and demonic with her sorcery, as she is uh, led astray by another uh, wizard named Modred for uh, for Marvel Comics. Great, great tale. John ironically does this right before he launches into the Dark Phoenix saga alongside Chris Claremont. And in Dark Phoenix, and then later when he twists Scarlet Witch again in 1989, 1990, in the pages of West, West Coast Avengers, John Byrne kind of depicts a similar scene. It's like he didn't get enough of this one scene I'm about to describe to you, <clears throat> but Dark Phoenix was sexy and alluring. When she fully became evil, she used her sexuality to um, tease Scott, who she knew was in love with her other alter form, Jean Grey, and to taunt Wolverine, who had been carrying a torch for her. Uh, she, she knew that she was the object of both of their you know, romantic desires, and she would flaunt it and uh, use it to insult them and then to hurt them. But there's a scene uh, in X-Men 136 where she is got all the, uh, she, she, she has 135, 136, 137 is really the teeth of the Dark Phoenix saga. And, the, and there's a scene in there, 135 or 136, where she is, again, holding aloft, given her incredible telekinetic powers, the entire X-Men, uh, the entire X-Men team that tried to, you know, contain her and take her down. And there's a scene where she is clearly torturing Peter, but is she 
grabbing his nether regions? Is she is she squeezing his his nads? Well, this exact where, where he's kind of grimacing and it's and it's happening off panel where it happens again. And in an interview, John Byrne confirms that in this sequence with Scarlet Witch, he is she is doing the exact same thing with Wonder Man as he grimaces again as it appears that she is grabbing his 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 gonads. And uh so so John liked to use the evil version of the popular heroine, twisted version, and and really attack, you know, the male sexuality and and uh, and 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 bring them to their knees, if you would. Both men crazy, angry, painful grimaces, and we felt it as kids. And we're like, is she she doing what I think she's doing right there? So Dark Phoenix is ridiculously uh resonant shocking groundbreaking has tremendous impact on the comic book world and again when she is at her worst she is almost flirting uh to all the people who were interested in her romantically including uh a man named jason wingard who was really an old jack kirby stan lee villain mastermind in disguise he had literally been hypnotizing her to be in love with him where he would control her power. This is all part of the back door into the Brotherhood, I'm sorry, the Hellfire Club storyline that really ignites and explodes the Dark Phoenix storyline. One leads directly into the other. One is a catalyst for the other. Dark Phoenix, again, when she turned dark, her costume went from red and gold, I'm sorry, green and gold to red and gold, crimson and gold, and her eyes got darker underneath her skin got paler she was truly a fright to behold she would go on to consume a planet and ultimately be judged by it by a galactic council and uh who 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 battled the x-men to have the right to judge her and sentence her and ultimately she takes her own life it's very sweet very sad but dark phoenix was a terror and i believe to a lot of the male audience who was making up the primary you know buying uh populace for these books they were all in on these dark versions there was no dark version of Frank Miller. I mean, I'm sorry. There was no dark version of Frank Miller's Electra. She just uh, came kind of from darkness. And as she saw the light, she was brutally murdered. Between Dark Phoenix and Electra and later Scarlet Witch, you've really got the super powerful female who the male antagonists are terrified of. Electra proved more than capable that she could stand hand to hand and in fact kick Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil's ass repeatedly. But uh and ironically, uh, I speak of the death of Electra often. There was a return of Electra, also written by Frank Miller, which is just as shocking and just as interesting and just as compelling. And she kind of returned, you know, more pure, more, more, uh, more, more heroic because she was now in white uh, attire as opposed to red attire. But I think the 80s with these characters, with Dark Phoenix and with Scarlet Witch and with Electra, really laid the seeds. The seeds are planted for what's to come, for what's to explode. In the 90s, I would be remiss if I did not mention that in the late 80s, early 90s, Marvel started doing a swimsuit edition. Yes, a swimsuit edition. And, and it had Captain America in a red, white, and blue Speedo. So it was an equal opportunity offender as far as the sexualization of the Marvel universe of characters in bathing suits. They did multiple editions of these, and it was capitalizing kind of tongue-in-cheek. No, absolutely tongue-in-cheek. Let me tell you, Marvel was capitalizing with tongue firmly implanted in cheek on the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition that had exploded into popularity, selling millions and millions. Literally, uh, the the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition in the 80s grew to be such a powerhouse that it paid for almost an entire year's worth of Sports Illustrated staff, writers, publication. I mean, it was 
they they gave they gave this these these swimsuit editions, which put names like El McPherson on the map. Uh, certainly featuring you know all manner of of beautiful supermodels at the time, Paulina Pornoskova. Uh, certainly, again, uh, El McPherson and Kathy Ireland. It 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 made these women powerhouses. They became the the top of the uh, supermodel food chain. That is uh, in in terms of earning power, uh, spotlight, commercial endorsements, and so just getting all these gorgeous supermodels to gather on a remote suit shoot in the Bahama, the Philippines, down in the out you know outback in Australia each year. The locale was as important supposedly as the uh, bikinis that they were rocking, but those Sports Illustrated issues uh, just were a signal of where the culture was going, and that you know. Look, it was very brazen. Men were buying these up. It was like Playboy that was okay on the kitchen table. It was, uh, it was like, well, it's a Sports Illustrated model issue. I mean, come on, it's part of my subscription. Uh, it's, it's, it comes during the off season. It was a way to capitalize for Sports, Sports Illustrated after football season was over, prior to the NBA playoffs, prior to the MLB. It, it was always a February uh, publication, and it, and it came out to titillate and to grab a ton of attention. It started getting major network attention on all the Today Show, uh, Good Morning America. They would be there with the models. They would launch on, on the sets of the morning show. I mean, how how bad could it be? How how bad could this titillization and sexualization be? Because it's being promoted by all of the major mainstream networks. Well, Marvel follows that and puts She-Hulk on the cover in a pink bikini. Um, puts the X-Men, the, I'm sorry, the women of the X-Men, the women storm. Uh, Jean Grey, rogue in sexy bikinis, one pieces under waterfalls, uh, all of the major Marvel superheroines, as well, again, as Captain America in a red, white, and blue Speedo, Tony Stark, um, all of your major males and females were drawn. I got some of those assignments. I did a boom, boom from the New Mutants. That was my assignment. I delivered. I grabbed my Sports Illustrated that was out that year. I said, okay, this is the kind of a, of a bikini that's in. Boom, put it on, off to the races. And in the pages of the X-Men as well, outside of the success of what was going on with the Marvel Swimsuit Editions, uh, Chris Claremont, Mark Silvestri, Jim Lee were increasingly depicting your favorite superheroines. Again, Storm, Rogue, Dazzler, uh, you know, Polaris. They're, they're all walking in and out in bikinis, in, in J- Madeline Pryor, Jean Grey. They're all in some form of swimsuit bikinis. One pieces, uh, all the different styles. Mark certainly, when he depicted them, was looking at you know the designers that were uh, in the Sports Illustrated models of uh, uh, magazines as well. Jim Lee, famously, in X Men number one, does a poolside edition where Psylocke is is in a really great bikini. Uh, again, this is the mainstreaming of this overt sexuality, and we're getting like you know cheap, bare cheeks. We're getting, you know, twisted bodies. They are taking exactly what's going on in the popular popular culture of Sports Illustrated and putting it into your favorite top-selling Marvel comics. So again, more seats, more seats, and more success. These are selling, these are selling, these are selling. And you're like, Rob, what about Wonder Woman? What about her? She's existed. She's like a Superman, kind of a Girl Scout. Certainly beautiful. Always uh, portrayed, you know, very full-figured, very full-bodied. Certainly Linda Carter. Uh, was an absolute definition of a bombshell. I mean, uh, recently we lost Raquel Welch, 
uh, of 1 million BC, a fantastic voyage. Raquel Welch was the bomb bombshell, the first bombshell actress uh, of my youth. All of the mainstream media reports, the Good Morning Americas, the Today Show, the CBS This Mornings, uh, the, the CNNs, when they were memorializing Raquel, week, Raquel Welch just a week ago, they spoke of her as bombshell. Raquel Welch, bombshell actress, one of the bombshell actresses in the in the uh, the 2000s. She was called one of the three uh, most beautiful women in in Hollywood, uh, alongside Marilyn Marilyn Monroe. Uh, look, the bombshell was not a term that Rob Liefeld created. Uh, this this was an this is a term that continues to permeate through the culture. And uh, Linda Carter certainly embodied that in the same way that Raquel Welch had, certainly s- separating her from, from something like a Lindsay Wagner who was bionic woman at the, time, at the time. But in the comic book pages, Wonder Woman really wasn't a big uh, uh, draw. Even George Perez, who said, I've got to try my, my, uh, my hand at, at resurrecting Wonder Woman the way Frank Miller resurrected Batman and the, the way... John Byrne resurrected Superman both in 1986. He said, I'm going to do it with Wonder Woman, but it wasn't with the same results because Wonder Woman somehow as a character doesn't, just didn't grab us in the same way. I, I got to be honest. I feel like the most popular version of Wonder Woman in my lifetime uh, tied with Linda Carter's incredible television impact was Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman film in 2017. That really resonated and probably is the best uh uh, depiction of the character while Linda Carter and the Wonder Woman TV show of my youth of the 70s is probably the most nostalgic and maybe still most most revel- relevant in the culture in the same way that you've still got Adam West Batman lingering. There were much bigger audiences back then. The, the, the TV shows back then got 20, 30 million views, not the five and the six million views now as, as everything's been diluted. But so when you're going, well, what about Wonder Woman? What about some of these others? Well, Wonder Woman didn't have a dark, titillating uh, storyline. And she had her own title. She always had her own title. There was a period in the early 70s, 1971, 72, it, 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 she became more of a spy character. They put her in pantsuits. They took away the red, white, and blue costume. But certainly it wasn't on the level of a Vampirella, of a Red Sonia, of what John Byrne was doing with Dark Phoenix, of uh, uh, what he did with Scarlet Witch. It wasn't, wasn't quite in the same category. But with the swimsuit additions and the increasing... Um, depiction of the X-Men poolside, beachside, this sexualization of these female characters was, was, was being heightened. We roll around in 1991, and there is a book published called Evil Ernie. <sighs> Brought to you by a man named Brian Polito. Evil Ernie was a cool kind of death metal thrasher looking kind of iconic uh, uh, character, uh, certainly kind of on the horror and horror tinge of things. Brian had a had a uh, a label called Chaos Comics. And in that first issue, there's a character named Lady Death. And she is a, uh, you know, represents the Lord of Death. And she is wearing, wait for it, bikini top, bikini bottoms, like so many of the others that I've, you know, discussed with you already. Very sexy, very well endowed, very voluptuous, very striking because she is completely white hair, white skin, black bikini, and uh, red lipstick, very striking visual. Lady Death would linger with people. Lady Death would later get her own release in 1994 as her own title. Now, we got to get that in there because on the calendar, 1991 matters. It, it matters that Evil Ernie arrived and Lady Death is one of the first of the modern day uh, uh, bombshell bad girls femme fatales. I... I'm doing Youngblood and Image Comics. Youngblood and Image Comics, each of the teams, whether it's Youngblood, Cyberforce, Wildcats, we all had our 
you know, kind of uh, sexy femme fatale. Vogue, Riptide on Youngblood, uh, Wildcats had had Voodoo, uh, Cy- Cyberforce had Cyblade. Everybody had kind of the, the sexy girl and to go along with the sexy men. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to get to what triggered the, the dominance in my mind, in my mind, my take on what was happening and why the bad girl femme fatale broke out and became so big right around this time. But we're all, we all have these, you know, we're, we're playing with these archetypes because again, Psylocke had been a real standout. Rogue was always super popular. Uh, one of the things that people who really loved and celebrate Mark Silvestri's run was his way of drawing beautiful women. Madeline Pryor in a, you know, ball gown dancing was something that we were like, wow, she's gorgeous. He, I mean, he, Mark had a way with drawing the most beautiful women. And it was something that everyone else here, everyone else in that peer group, myself included, Jim Lee included, aspired to. So we each have, you know, the pretty femme fatale as part of our, um, our series. I did a Youngblood spinoff called Youngblood Strike File, where I was going to do uh, solo stories. I did do solo stories of each of the most popular Youngblood characters. The launch story featured a character named Die Hard. And I took him all the way back to his World War II ro- roots. Uh, creating my own version of DC's Justice Society or DC uh, or Marvel's Invaders. I wanted my own kind of uh, World War era supergroup. I had an Amazon uh, clear, clearly, uh, you know, uh, designed Echo of Wonder Woman, all with she, she was white, had white hair and a red and white costume, and her name was Gloriana, short for Glory. So Princess Gloriana uh, fought alongside not only uh, my character Die Hard who there was a version of in World War II, but also I was able to secure uh, Eric Larson's cooperation and he lent me Super Patriot, a Super Patriot of the World War II era. And so they were kind of, so I'm, I'm, I'm now getting a, a transplant from another image founder, image member, important, you know, launch book character was Super Patriot who had become really popular on the pages of Savage Dragon. Youngblood Strike found number one, sold over a million copies. And in the, in the front, I'm guilty, I put a centerfold of glory. She's, Resting very sexy on a on, on on a rock embankment, which is on her Amazon island. Now I took a shot that I really liked from a swimsuit issue that I had, and I duplicated it. I used photo reference, and this pinup uh, we later released as a poster because the mail and the response was so huge. I had never done a pub, uh, a poster at Marvel Comics, even though I was told how truly profitable they were. One image, print it up, sell it over and over and over and over. Glory was so popular, we put this poster out and we had to go back to press twice. We had to go back to press twice. And it was already between the staples as a dedicated pinup in Youngblood Strike File number one. Glory continues along with the story being in parts two and three. And again, Youngblood Strike File, every issue is selling a million. We are getting to a ton, a ton of, of receptive fans of a, of a very game audience. Our mail on Glory is overwhelming. They love her. They want more. They want her in the modern age. So we make plans to start making a Glory number one comic book because we can sense that the heat is there. But who is going to draw it? I want somebody up to the task. By the time uh, Youngblood Strike Final number three, wrapping up the initial Glory arc with Super with uh, with uh, with uh, Die Hard and Super Patriot is 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 completed, we are in summer of 1993, and we are making plans to try and find the right creative team to bring this book to light, hopefully in 1994. We eventually contact an, uh, a writer that I was very fond of at Marvel Comics. She wrote my favorite stretch of stories for a book called Power Man and Iron Fist, which was a very top 
uh, bestseller for Marvel Comics. She had done a lot of different X-Men jobs alongside Chris Claremont, who she was very good friends with. Her name is Mary Jo Duffy. I contacted her. I said, this would be perfect. Um, you will be the perfect voice to write glory, but we still had yet to find an artist. During this time, here's where Wonder Woman completely changes and becomes the Femme Patel uh, kind of bad girl book that it had not been up until this point because it is drawn by an artist named Mike Diodato, written by William Messner Loeb's. And the stories are su- are suddenly much more visceral, much more uh, much more action packed, and uh, a little more sexual aggressive. Sexually aggressive. There is a rival Amazonian. There have always been many of these, but Artemis comes to the fore and is this uh, foil for Wonder Woman, who is now sporting a new look. They, they they abandon her classic World War, you know, her, her classic Linda Carter television Wonder Woman classic Wonder Woman garb she's now wearing a sports bra a leather jacket and running shorts with stars down the side they have absolutely gone all in um they've chopped her hair given her these bangs earrings she is sexy wonder woman and sexy wonder woman battling sexy artemis is drawn by one of the best female artists of the of the period mike diodato junior and as i'm getting each and every issue of this incredibly ramped up Femme fatale focused issues of of Wonder Woman. I'm like, I need to contact Mike Diodato. We're already kind of working with some of these people in this uh, in this studio. So we reached out and made plans that when Mike had an opening, he would start drawing Glory, which he was able to do at the end of 1994 for a 1995 launch of Glory. Well, while that's happening, in the midst of all this, in 1993, there is a book, a little known book, hard to hard to obtain. You're going to pay a nice price for this because it 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 contains my favorite of all of the femme fatale bad girl superheroines that we're talking about it's called razor annual number one it was released in 1993 a author by the name of william tucci uh did this work and in the background is a character lurking named she now as she comes to the forefront and gets her own title in 1994 she is like kabuki got the uh all white chalk white face a very elegant warrior's kind of costume. And she really reminds me of, holy crap, how did no one get to this depiction of an Electra-style character? Because I believe the world was waiting for another kind of ninja-focused female heroine. And Bill, Bill Tucci, William Tucci, Billy Tucci, great guy, completely struck gold and had an overflowing, you know, oil oil field because i mean he just drilled down and hit pay dirt i mean he was uh she was immediately uh recognizable billy drew her in a very patrick nagel a very popular artist at the end of the 80s uh he did the cover to duran duran's rio you'll know his work instantly billy's approach to she early on was very much patrick nagel but again with that chalk white face that uh black hair just a really great costume design, kind of a, a, a halter top, uh, kind of kind of a, a raised, bumpy, uh, styled armor. I mean, it's just again, you know, you got a bikini bottom in there, long bare legs, uh, swords, knives, throwing stars, ninjas, samurais. I'm sold. I'm in. Uh, Billy, she was immediately, immediately popular. Maybe one of the best received of all of these characters that were being launched at the time. So Billy Tucci emerges having uh, created She on his own 
and explodes onto the scene and immediately has the attention of the entire world. This isn't an image comic. This isn't a Marvel comic. This isn't a DC comic. I mean, Billy knocks it out of the park with sheet. Now, as Mark Silvestri is looking to spin off his own group of dynamic femme fatales, he packs with Billy early on and they do a side blade she crossover. Billy does one. Mark does one. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, the best she illustrations I've ever seen are under the, I mean, are you surprised that I'm going to say Mark Silvestri? Can you really be surprised? The, the guy who I think is one of the, if not the best illustrator of the last 30, 40 years, the most commercial, uh, most beautiful, most, most uh, accomplished draft person. He drew she and Cyblade, his cyber force femme fatale Cyblade. She Cyblade was released. A preview book was out at San Diego. And I mean, people were tackling themselves to get to it. It was that beautiful. It was that resonant. It's one of those books that when I came back from San Diego that Sunday, that afternoon, I plopped down on the couch and my wife's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to read this She Cyblade book backwards, forwards, sideways. It's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Billy had already, you know, made a huge impact in making She extremely popular. And again, just all of that Electra energy and even more so with Mark uh, penciling her so soon after she's become popular in the pages of now an image comic. So the awareness gets even higher and there's splash pages and all amazing uh, uh, dynamic shots of she. And it just, people, people lost their minds. They saw the potential beyond William Tucci, beyond Bill Tucci's amazing depiction of she, what it could be. He would go on to do, um, you know, all manner of spinoffs and, uh, and, and, and he would, uh, you know, do his his own own uh version of uh <clears throat> the very popular the, the very the very popular uh art of war book by Sun Tzu uh uh Billy did a version of that with she where he had different artists draw different installments and he really in my mind uh I thought what Billy was doing during 1994 95 96 97 was just a next level uh intellectual property and i mean that with the highest compliment as a as a publisher as an artist as a creator i'm like look at billy he came out of nowhere i had never heard of him before she is instantly maybe the most stunning recognizable red and white samurai ninjas i mean just the imagery boom because we love our eastern imagery here in the west and uh he capitalized on it great name she just great name uh just immediate success became the darling of the movement but in Mark's adaptation with Cyblade, she he had baked in there a character named the Witchblade, Sarah Panzini, I believe. Uh, if I mess that up, you know, forgive me. Witchblade uh, was was first appeared in uh, in the pages of 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 uh, in the pages of Cyblade, she she Cyblade, and uh, <clears throat> immediately just. Blew off. Yeah, I think I got it right. Sarah Pizzini. P- Pizzini? Witchblade. Now, Witchblade would then arrive late in 1995 under the pen, pencil of Michael Turner, and you had a unique combo of fledgling superstar talent who's just taking off, just the, the rocket fuel is just starting to hit the tarmac, and he is about to take off for the stars. And a character that uh, is created by both Mark Silvestri himself and uh, I, there's a long li- line of, of creators on that creators list. Uh, everybody who contributed gets a, gets a credit and uh, Witchblade became an overnight 
you know, sensation with Top Cow and possibly their greatest legacy comic. And with good reason. With Mark contributing, writing, uh, creating, uh, you know, guiding the book and Mike Turner's dynamite pencils, the book just exploded. It was the most commercially uh, viable of all of them. And, and, and I would be remiss at this time to say that over at Wildstorm, there was a team book called Gen 13 and there was a femme fatale within that team book named Fairchild, uh, all under the pen of, of J. Scott Campbell. And, and that exploded as well. Again, you're just getting these shots of these uber femme fatale warrior women and, and they're just exploding. Now, again, at this time, Mike Diodato has been freed up from Wonder Woman. And so in this 1994-1995 period, we are able to finally launch Glory Number 1 to superstar sales. Giant, almost 700,000 copies. We're no longer in the million copies era, but we are launching high above all the rest. The book sells out. People can't get enough of it. Mary Jo Duffy is writing the scripts. Mike Diodato is supplying most of the art. We'd cover that in another podcast about about a, a lot of different ghosting that was going on, but supposedly it was, you know, coming out under his quote unquote blessing. Uh, bottom line, the public was all in on glory. They followed through on their promise of the support for the character that I introduced in 1993. And now in 1995, it explodes. So you got Lady Death, who's getting her own showcase following her early appearance in 1991. Uh, and, and, and Lady Death, I think also much like with, with, with Mark, Lady Death goes on to define and become the flagship character for Chaos Comics, much more so than Evil Ernie had. Whereas Witchblade became much more, uh, I think, definitive as a top cow property than Cyberforce had. I mean, these are huge successes. Uh, And and Vampirilla, amidst all this, has made a comeback with a new publisher named Harris Publications. And they are out there uh, exploding with Vampirilla. Now, you got to understand, as a publisher, I couldn't be more thrilled with Glory. But I'm also trying to to watch the trends and ride the wave. And why is it? Why is it that the femme fatale warrior woman is suddenly dominating? Why is it that she is garnering all the attention? That Lady Death is garnering all the attention? That Fairchild is the breakout character in Gen 13 where there's uh, two guys, two girls? Why is it that, that uh, you know, Glory, she, Lady Death, Fairchild, these books are exploding. Vampirilla is exploding, basically keeping the lights on at Harris. There's something going on here. The comic book buying audience, the retailers, are showing all their love and all their support and throwing it full bore behind these femme fatales. What would, what would the, the fan press would go on to call the bad girls, the bad girl movement. Again, Glory... Uh, had staked her claim back in 1993 and it is now paying off each and every month. But I feel like we need to have more, more representation in that space because I see where the sales are trending. Now, after what is roughly, I'd say from 1989, when Cable first arrives in the last month of 1989 in the pages of New Mutants 87, all the way, you can, you can go back to, to Wolverine. Okay, Wolverine's popularity in the mid-80s. And then the Cable, and then the Ghost Rider, and then the Punisher. All of those are around the same time. I just, Cable represented like the new raging macho. Wolverine, Ghost Rider, Pacho, uh, Punisher, Pacho. Wolverine, Ghost Rider, and Punisher were like the 80s macho dudes. Now, now Cable is the new macho. And then that blows off like, you know, a whole slew of these macho guys with shoulder pads and big guns and it's Death Blow. And it's, uh, you know, 
it, it, it's 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 all these different firearm over over at Malibu or Bravora, I forget which, but everybody is coming with their big gun, big brawny, big knife, big players. Every team has one. And we are overflowing in brawn, in brawny, in macho. It's it's an it's an over I mean, it, it really is an overload. Prime over at Malibu, which was an echo of the classic Captain Marvel Shazam from Fawcett except more glorified the the prime who 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 the young man would transform into the same way Billy Batson would transform into Shazam he was uber steroided out it's like the next level of brawn and brawny muscles the pit the hulk everyone got bigger stronger more ripped my warrior went men from shatterstar in x-force to shaft in the page of the young blood uh yet spartan in 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 uh in Wildcat, you had Striker. It's Cable with three arms. I mean, you, you had this super brawn flex. And, and, and again, I believe that super brawn flex. Cable got his own series. It exploded uh, over at Marvel. I think that we just hit Apex Mountain with all of the brawniness. And what, what had happened is these dynamic females from the 80s who really showed a blueprint of how the fans will go crazy over the female character that dominates her male counterparts. And I don't mean dominate sexually. I mean power, power, control, assertion, authority. And so slowly you see with all these female characters and the success that they're getting, that this is a movement, that people want this. And, uh, and this is where they are migrating to. Now, Jim and Mark during this time also do a wild storm because Mark is at wild storm at the time. A wild storm sp- Swimsuit edition in the same way that that Marvel had done theirs. And it meets with tremendous, tremendous results. With Wildstorm getting into the swimsuit thing, I mean, you just knew the lid was blown off. And, and Marvel, again, did many editions uh, from the late 80s, early 90s. And so I'm sitting there, sales trend, you know, sales are a powerful indicator of where the market is going and all of these books are doing extremely well glory is a breakout for extreme studios following in the success of what we've seen with she of what we've seen with um what's going on over at chaos comics with lady death vampirilla is resurgent and vampirilla is actually uh appearing in 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 live form at conventions at the harris studios at the harris comic book publishing booth all over you know New York, Chicago, San Diego, they have a spokesmodel. They've gone one better. They're, they're giving you a spokesmodel, a live female in the flesh and blood wearing that very same Vampirilla Frank Frazetta number one, 1969 costume. A beautiful young woman named Kathy Christian is meeting and greeting fans and is getting lines to meet her as long as Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, myself, anybody who was rocking and socking at Marvel, DC, or Image Comics. Kathy Christian is a tremendous draw, and she is literally a model that they have hired to portray Vampirilla. Well, I had met Kathy, introduced myself. She was very kind. Um, Harris was was really, they had struck gold with Kathy. She was personable. She was kind, very pretty, great smile, you know, very ebullient personality, very outgoing. You know, you've seen spokesmodels before that are like, don't touch me. <laughs> You can read it on their eyes. Get away from me. Don't get near me. Uh, nowhere near as um, 
as as uh, as kind and, appro- and and approachable as Kathy. She combined, and she was just stunning, beautiful. Uh, my best man in my wedding, his name is Tony Libido, would in his you know uh, position as publisher, traveling to all these shows and being very outgoing himself, asked Kathy Christian out. They began to date. Next thing I know, they are talking about getting married. A light bulb, light bulb goes off in my head. I said, I am going to create a brand new character for our new line, my spinoff line, Maximum Press, which I'm looking to do more sci-fi fantasy themed properties. I am going to approach Kathy Christian and see if, does she have a contract with Vampirilla? Can she get out of it? What it you know, what's the parameters? After speaking with Kathy, getting out of her contract with Vampirilla would be no problem whatsoever, and she was more than ready to step into the role that I was going to create for her in this brand new capacity. I said, look, she's like, at this point, they're getting married. Kathy and Tony are getting married. So now I have to understand that if they get married, that what's hers is his and his is hers. It's California. It's a 50-50 state. So I say, look, you guys, I will split ownership of this new character, and we will put you on as creators to give the character, the, 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 you know, the uh, more skin in the game, as they put it on Wall Street, more skin in the game. And Kathy and Tony were like, great, we trust you. Let's go. So we went forward and I stayed up a couple nights trying to go, how do I break into this space? I've already got glory. I've got my Amazon. Lady Death has their, you know, mistress of death. You've got your Asian uh, warrior, you know, icon over with Billy Tucci. Uh, Vampirilla, you've got your vampire. You know, you've got your now now witch-themed, you know, character over at Top Cow. I mean, it's crowded. The space is crowded. And I decided that I would focus on an angel, a fallen angel, a fallen angel who had had a big disagreement falling out with the Almighty, who then dis- decides that she can serve penance on earth. Her falling out was the source of the fact that she didn't understand why the Almighty was uh, so affectionate towards mankind, given that mankind was just a complete failure and disappointment. And he says, well, well, I think you need to be humble and I think you can find out the best way is, is, is by walking among them. And he banishes uh, Evangeline, who is an almighty war host, the, the general of, of the war host and banishes her to earth to walk among men uh, as a normal human. Very limited in her abilities as an angel. Very limited is transferred over. What she does upon arriving is not only does she get, get attacked because she realized that, that Earth, she realizes Earth is populated by fallen angels, hence demons, who have fallen in with different demon lords who have created like different mafioso families here on Earth. She wanders into a church and, and, and collapses into the arms of a young priest named Peter who is thinking about leaving the cloth. He is having second guesses about his devotion uh, to being to the priesthood. And so there we have our dynamic and we were off and running and I I really did feel completely inspired. I went over, I said to Kathy and Tony, here's what we're going to do. Here's the illustrations I'm going to come up with. Here's the launch stuff. We were off and running. We announced Evangeline. Kathy Christian would no longer be appearing as Vampirilla. She would be appearing as Evangeline. She would have skin in the game. And in fact, all these years later, both she and Tony, uh, even though they have gone their separate ways, and yes, I was in their wedding, uh, even though this has occurred, they both continue to uh, participate in Evangeline. Evangeline launched to huge sales. And long story short, 
Evangeline and Glory would become Extreme Studios' top two selling books for the next two years, outselling Youngblood, Prophet, Brigade, Bloodstrike, all of it. The wave had crested and we were riding it. And Evangeline, I feel like, was one of the last ones in the door. It was a very crowded elevator uh, going all the way up to the penthouse. You had to elbow your way past Vampirella, Witchblade, Lady Death, She, uh, and, and we managed to do it with Evangeline and Glory. And we managed managed to wedge ourselves into that um, huge Fairchild, also in there, uh, that huge bad girl femme fatale space. Evangeline became so popular after the first three issues, which were, which were going to kind of test the market. We immediately did another miniseries and another quick two-parter. And then in the same in the same year, Glory, Evangeline, we teamed them up at the end of the launch year when Glory had, had, and Evangeline had both launched in spring, summer of 1995. We teamed them up in a double-sized. We put a chromium cover on it. We did two. We did Glory, Evangeline, and Evangeline Glory. I wrote and drew one of them. I wrote and John Stinsman illustrated the other, and they were huge monster sellers. Again, now we are in the throes of experiencing this incredible sales success. Everybody loves the warrior woman. They want the warrior woman. They are obsessed with the warrior woman. The brawny man is a thing of the past. They're not as interested. We've seen over and over and over repeat versions of that character, that warrior-styled man. And uh, and like I said, tip of the hat to Punisher and Wolverine. They started it off. Cable came in, was, was, uh, was integral in, in, in enhancing it even further, but then it just was overboard. So now we've got these amazing, powerful, femme fatale warrior women. Were they sexualized? They were, absolutely. And I, I was interviewed uh, by an, uh, a magazine, a te- television magazine at the time. And they said, what do you think about these, uh, you know, the, these, w- these depictions of women? And I said, well, in all honesty, they're in no different than the ways that we have depicted men. Broad chest, broad shoulders, tiny waists, you know, strong legs, r- ridiculously chiseled, handsome features. Strong chins, I mean, wavy hair, but they, they, they seem to focus on, well, now we're getting to a very titillizing, uh, you know, depiction of the female form with a bloody sword, a bloody axe, with bloody fangs, with a magical, you know, amulet emanating like a magical claw, like with Witchblade. So this was the apex of, of this particular trend, and it flat out. I believe, uh, just shy of, but right there, saved the comic book industry in the mid-90s and kept everything moving when it was about to collapse because these books sold and sold and sold and they became, we did Evangeline Half, we did Evangeline you know, Acetate covers for Wizard Magazine because they said, we'll pony up the cash, we'll do this with you, we'll bring the money. Um, it wasn't just me, it was Witchblade, it was Lady Death, it was Vampirilla, it was She- that the, the mighty women of this movement became extremely power, uh, popular and powerful, and the fan base was there in rabid succession. When Kathy Christian showed up in her initial um, debut that summer touring as Evangeline, again, all the long lines had shifted square to the attention that she was giving Evangeline, and Maximum Press was off to the races and Evangeline was a giant success. Glory was an, a giant success at Extreme Studios. And again, looking at the charts, again, Witchblade, She, Lady Death, Vampirilla exploding at the same time. The way of the warrior women was now uh, dominating 
sales across the comics industry, not just for me, but again, for all of the different publishers. And in the most part, independent publishers, Crusade Comics, Chaos Comics, Top Cow, Extreme, you know, and 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 Marvel and, and DC with their Batman and Spider-Man and X-Men focus didn't need to, you know, churn out some new bad girl uh, icons or motifs. They had their own giant icons, but we were able to now reset the sales clock with this entry into Warrior Woman. Now, this would last for several years. And again, you'd have Michael Turner would go on and create Fathom and 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 further capitalize on his witch played success. But what happened in the early 2000s is now you start seeing this on film and you say, well, life, what about Xena Warrior Princess? I, I'll include her. In the late 90s, Xena Warrior Warrior Princess, a spinoff of the popular Hercules show, goes on to be a huge success in syndication. And then the early 2000s come. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Sarah Michelle Gellar, that entire motif explodes. I mean, the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie was kind of a dark comedy. Now we have this kick-ass action fantasy adventure series that exploded in popularity at the apex of, again, Joss Whedon's uh, interaction with the fan base, which was not, this is not, the 2023 Joss Whedon, the 1999, 2000, 2001 Joss Whedon is a powerful model. 1998 Joss Whedon is a powerful force in, 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 in fan-driven, you know, material, pop culture, IP. Then the early 2000s, you get Underworld, you get Resident Evil, you get Kill Bill. Tarantino throws his, his hat in the ring. And, you know, she's killing people <clears throat> with knives. I'm speaking of the bride, Kill Bill. She's killing people with her, um, her, her, her custom katana sword. She is battling off crazy, the, the, the crazy 88 ninja hordes. Um, she's going fisticuffs, flying ki- kicks, and then she takes on her mentor himself. She gets shot point blank in the chest with birdshot. Okay. I mean, this is a action packed, violent thrill ride. There is no doubt it is one of Tarantino's best efforts. <clears throat> surrounded by femme fatales underworld puts kate beckinsale on the map it separates her from all of the art house films that she had been doing and been doing wonderfully by the way huge huge kate beckinsale fan just from from cold comfort farm to uh to the last days of disco we were all in on her suddenly she shows up in the most skin tight leather and there's look there was a joke that they made during Zack snyder's uh justice league that maybe the camera was dwelling too much on the derriere, the the uh, the booty of of one Gal Gadot, and this introduced the the concept of the male gaze, G A Z E, the gaze, like you do with your eyes, gaze upon something. The male gaze suddenly, suddenly, in twenty thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, this was suddenly a problem. But in the early two thousands, with Underworld and its umpteen spinoffs. And Resident Evil and its umpteen spinoffs and the the incredible explosion of Kill Bill and look we we you know there are all manner of other female driven franchises that were exploding at the time and again we can talk about Aliens with with Sigourney Weaver and we can talk about the Terminator with Linda Hamilton and certainly these these images were happening on film but at the time in the early nineties they weren't translating into the comic book world what happens in the comic book world with the bad girls and the femme fatale movement is squarely in ninety four ninety five ninety six ninety seven ninety eight boom really really gets ahead of steam in ninety five because in ninety five you get Glory and Evangeline in their own comics you get Witchblade in her own comic and now that's alongside She and Lady Death and you are just a locomotive train with a head of steam you know, powering down the tracks, pummeling sales, uh, 
really, and that kept going through the late nineties. And then, then again, we, we get these transformative, uh, uh, you know, roles again, do not discount how popular every fall. I mean, they were, they were, you know, mark your calendar. There was a new resident evil. Mila had found her, you know, major showcase. And, and then you've got, I think people were shocked at the, at the response to underworld, but I mean, you know, that Kate Beckinsdale's husband is the one shooting that movie. And, and, and there are numerous shots that the camera rolls right off, you know, shots of her derriere and, and, and pulls focus into a different crowd scene or follows her tight leather pants through the, I mean, it's in the trailers. Okay. I'm just reporting what was happening on. So suddenly the bad girl movement has transported itself into film. And for the two thousands, we got some of the best female action and people were realizing, wow, Women can kick ass and people love it, of course, because what was happening in film was now, you know, reflecting what was going on in comics. The brawny, you know, Schwarzenegger films, the Bruce Willis films, the, the Von Damme, the Sylvester Stallone, the guys with the big ripped chest, the oiled up muscles that we had gotten a decade of. The audience was tired of those. But suddenly we're getting beautiful kick ass heroines, you know, and maybe they have blood splurted on their blonde locks that are, you know cast down uh, over their eyes like Uma Thurman crouched you know in a Bruce Lee track track jumpsuit with a with a katana and 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 big kicks and guns and you've got the tightest leather ever worn by an actress on Kate Beckinsale you've got all manner of different outfits as Mila uh, is jumping back and forth shooting all manner of zombie and creatures and monsters and audiences showed up again and again because it's like what do we want to watch these over you know, steroid guys, or we want to watch these beautiful women kick ass. Well, again, Alias with Jennifer Garner took off on its multi-season run as a kick-ass, you know, uh, uh, spy franchise. Kick, I mean, all she would ever do is kick men all over the, just kick them around, under, over the tables. Uh, the age of the powerful female was upon us. And I'm going to tell you why I think it's coming back. I have met with producers. I have met with uh, big we would call some of the biggest names in Hollywood, big female marquee directors and actresses. And they grab these books and I start apologizing for them because the 55 year old Rob Liefeld wants to apologize for what the 26 year old Rob Liefeld was doing in maybe going too much in an overtly sexual manner with these characters. And they're like, we love it. We love what it represented. We love the power it represents. We want to put this on film. We want to make a series of this. I got to be ta- I got to tell you I was I was taken back but I'm excited by it at the same time. A couple of them have put together what they call lookbooks. They they they've shown me, you know, the visual that they they've cherry picked the 40, 50 Evangeline comic books, uh, you know, the the 30, 40 Glory comics. They've they've pinpointed different images. They've said, this is what I love. And it's Evangeline standing over a fallen demon with blood all over the sword, splattered onto her, you know, thighs and arm, on her, on her face, on her hair. There's something going out there. I think we've, uh, the, these, I'm just reflecting what these very powerful uh, female influential producers, directors, and actresses are showing to me. And it is, you know, with that in mind that I thought, this is perfect. It's a perfect time to reflect on this. Before all of this comes raging back, right now you can go on Kickstarter. You can, I think, finish supporting Mark Silvestri's Witchblade. I think they're doing an omnibus. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I saw that he was redesigning Witchblade, getting for another run 
at Witchblade as I am getting for another run at Evangeline and Glory and maybe she and Vampirilla and Lady Death will 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 be back bigger than ever. I know Brian Polito has continued to continue the strong female uh, represent representation that he gave uh, over at Chaos Comics. He is like one of the darlings of the crowdfunded um, entertainment. But uh, this kind of entertainment, flat out, made retailers tons of money, kept the lights on. It kept the lights on at extreme. It kept the lights on at extreme for at least two to three years. The sales of the books were unexpected, but they were just um, overwhelming. Again, there was no uh, special edition that we could price you out of. You wanted all of it, and you wanted all of it as fast and as often as you possibly could. And we had the surprising sales. I mean, I remember informing everybody, guys, we are selling way more of Evangeline than we are of Youngblood and Brigade and Bloodstrike and Profit and way more of Glory. And again, over at the other companies, they were doing the same. This is a really fun, interesting era, but I believe that in both instances, whether it was in film or in, uh, in, th- in, in, in comic books, that the overemphasis on the male action hero led to some apathy. Like, okay, we've seen a guy with this tight wife beater kicking down the door with his big Gatlin gun and blowing everybody away in every Schwarzenegger, in every Stallone, in every Von Damme. Now it's time to go, wow, as much as I'm like a Neo Trinity is kicking all sorts of ass and I dig her, you know, in Underworld. And of course, an all a, a kick-ass female warrior woman all in leather would immediately, you know, be transplanted to the Underworld franchise as depicted by Kate Beckinsale. The, the, Kill Bill is among Uma, Uma Thurman's finest on her resume. And what is she doing? She is kicking ass, taking names. She is a femme fatale. Underworld. Resident Evil. I just keep saying this because I want you to remember. You're like me. Those September afternoons, those Octobers, uh, going to see Resident Evil. Going to see Underworld. These were fall films. All of these. Kill Bill, Underworld, uh, Resident Evil really were the dominion of the October, November uh, release dates. When, 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 when the big summer blockbusters were gone, but boom, we showed up for these movies. We loved it. Because again, who doesn't want, I would say with my wife, I would much rather watch, you know, Uma Thurman kick 60 guys ass than, than, than Tom Cruise at this point in time. And the industry, the comics industry felt the same. As, was ever, as with everything, I think, uh, again, to me, my favorite of all of them was she. It's the one that I was most impressed by from a conceptual and a visual standpoint and kudos to Billy Tucci, but all of them are tremendously successful and deserve the respect for what they accomplished. Uh, in recent years, Red Sonia has come roaring back. Uh, there's always a time and a place for the successful film fatale, but what we discussed today was when the, uh, the, the bright light burned, uh, burned the longest and it really, really sustained an entire business, paid a lot of bills for retailers, for publishers. For creators, the age of the bad girl. It was a golden era, and uh, and it was an era that we could no longer deny. And today we embraced it. And I hope it brought you back. And if you didn't, and if you weren't there, you know, go ahead and, and check what I'm telling you. These dates match up. The time period when this occurred, uh, how it, you know, how a rising tide lifted all ships. Uh, it's it's a fun period, and 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 again, it's a period that that I mean, I'm sitting there meeting with producers, apologizing for because I feel guilty, and and these extremely um again if if these these talents attach their names and go out with this i mean it's a huge affirmative 
you know, active support saying, we do love this. We want more of this. And so, uh, you know, I'm not saying that this is the next big thing, but it could be. And it once was. And I enjoyed walking down memory lane with you guys today. I just want to Take this time to thank you guys so much for all the support that you have continued to pour out for observations each and every week. I am just amazed again that um, you guys give me your time, give me your time, give me your um, lend me your ear and 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 uh, and express to me that you are enjoying this crazy journey that we've been on now almost for the better part of three years. If you're just joining on and you're catching up, there are so many episodes. I'm so excited for you to go down, uh, go come 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 through this journey with me, and and. Uh, just I, I I am so thrilled to give you these episodes each and every week. And normally at this time I read your reviews. But here's the deal. I'm about to launch a brand new podcast. Uh big announcement is that I am going to be launching a podcast called, wait for it, the Robcast. And the Robcast is completely different than what we do here at Robservations. It is not it is it is less uh of a recollection of a time period and and a movement and and behind the scenes insider juice not not completely absent that but the mission statement of the robcast is that each and every episode of the robcast is going to revisit and examine dissect a particular comic book a film a a novella a book and we are going to parse it and explain its cultural and historical significance there's going to be different categories we're going to be looking at historical relevance we're going to look at notables we're going to look at creative pedigrees. Who worked on it? What were they doing at the time? What was their claim to fames? Brushed with greatness. We're going to give inkers, embellishers, finishers their due. We're going to look at sugar rush. I'm not going to tell you what sugar rush is. You're going to have to find out. You're going to have to tune into the Robcast and find out. And we're going to look at the lasting legacy. But again, on the launch edition of, of the Robcast, I took a, a run of a popular Marvel comic that has been in the headlines of, of, of late. And I looked at a, uh, storyline that ran three issues right in my formative years as I was coming in and I shared read along with with some of the book and shared it with you and it's laugh out loud funny it it reflects the time the 70s what was going on at Marvel during that period uh what creative elements were being moved around maybe what was the subliminal message what was being positioned in that story while while I'm reading that story that seven-year-old Rob Liefeld would never have known this is the kind of stuff we're we're doing the Rob cast is going to isolate uh, storylines runs and 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 again uh, uh, one week it'll be a movie it'll be a show it'll be a single episode and we're going to look at all the different details and all the different aspects that went into that particularly that particular body of work so the robcast is on its way it's set to launch in early march i'm here to promote it i hope you look out for the robcast i think it's going to take you on a little bit of a different journey it's not the same style that I'm doing here at the Rob, Rob Observations, but I would ask very much so that you check out the Robcast when it launches. I'll continue to let you know when it's about to land. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. You can find me. I love interacting with you guys. It's where a lot of news breaks. I'm able to share a, a lot of what I'm doing in my career. I so enjoy the mentions, the DMs, the back and forth that we have on Twitter. Please look for me. Follow me. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, and I'll be looking for you and looking forward to talking to you. On Instagram, Instagram is my photo, you know, dump library, uh, itinerary, uh, uh, you know, diary of my of, of my existence. If I'm drawing it, I show it to you. What I'm eating, that's probably going to make the feed as well. Um, what I'm doing with my family, also, it's just again I, the best way I can ex- explain it is that it is my 
uh, photo dump of my life. And if you want to follow me along over on Instagram, I would hope that you join me. I am at Rob Liefeld. Again, I read your mentions. I read your uh, messages and, and all of the different replies that you leave for me. Thank you so much for following me over at Instagram, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, Twitter, is at Robert Liefeld. Both have blue checks, which for now I know has become a weird thing, but it's at least it's a form of verification uh, that, it, that, that that still stands at this moment. Over on Facebook, I have a group I'd like to invite you to. It's called Rob Liefeld Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It is a fun group. It's an extension of what we do here at the podcast. We have a lot of great lively discussions in the group. Either myself or a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A, will click you through. We're the administrators on that group. That's how you know that you will found the right group on Facebook. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond, all comics, all the time. Find your way over there. Click on through. We'd love to see you. My, again, myself or Terry will be the people that, that, that you know push you on through. I am on a collectible app called Whatnot. It is burning up the collectible world, sports cards, trading cards. Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, you name it, comics, Funkos, uh, you know, toys, action figures. They've got sports stuff. It's all available to you over on Whatnot. I am Rob Liefeld on Whatnot. Please follow me. I do uh, one or two shows a week. You'll know if you follow me, you'll get a notification. It'll tell you when my next show is going up. I share signed comic books, signed original artwork. Yes, lots of original artwork is shared and moved on that app during during my live feeds. Uh, tons of Toys and Funko Pops, that's kind of the realm that I that I kind of, you know, work with, swim in, and share with all with, with all of you. Uh my I am I am on camera looking right at you, nestled from one of my mini beanbags as I share all these items with you. Uh you'll learn what all the different custom signatures that we offer, the 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 drop shadow chisel, the chisel in and of itself, the bloody, the blood splatter chisel. You'll understand what is he's talking about. Catch me on whatnot, find out for yourself. I have custom uh Variants, exclusive books that we only offer when I'm on the live feed. We have uh, Spider-Man books that we've done with whatnot, uh, Deadpool, New Mutants, Brigade, and there's way more on the way. Please, I encourage you to follow me and catch me when I go live. You'll get that notification if you follow me, Rob Liefeld on whatnot. At the end of every episode, I am wishing you all the best. It is the favorite thing that I get to do. That's why I do it each and every time. I try and you know di- differentiate it a little bit, but I, but I want to keep it real. And I want to tell you, I care about you. I, I want you to do well. I want uh, in my life. I turned to my wife the other day and I said, "Look, I am in the harmony of my life. I rejoice. I rejoice in my kids' accomplishments. When a family member falls ill, as some of our family members have been doing lately, um, look, I can I I can immediately transition to how can I help you? What do you need from me? Mode and be that helper, be that um, you know, be that assistance, and uh, just living in the harmony." wanting to express all the positive uh, love and joy that I have and, 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 and share it your way. I hope that you can escape the grind. And my recommendations is get with friends, have a great time, go out, grab, grab drinks, grab a great meal. You know me, I'm a big nacho guy. I'm a big burger guy. I'm a big hot dog guy. I'm a big pasta guy, pizza guy. I love all of it. Gourmet tacos. That's, that's my sweet spot right now. Has been for a couple of years. Peanut butter cups. <laughs> We, we've gone over what are they putting in those peanut butter cups? How much more can they stuff into the big cup? This is kind of the, I can't wait 10 years to now to see exactly how big the big cup is. But I combine my love of comics and movies with cheat meals. And uh, that's my unhealthy recommendation I give to you each and every time, hoping that you will go down that same rabbit hole with me. But on the other end of it is enlightenment. Not really. Uh, what, what it is, 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 uh, is you, you, you fed the pleasure centers 
the, the, the storytelling that you dig, the food, the taste buds, and hopefully distracted for whatever's going on in your life that is a struggle, that is a trial. And I am here to lift you up and to, to tell you that you got a friend. I'm rooting for you. Thank you again for listening to this podcast. I will be back. We have to launch an all new podcast called The Robcast. It's a completely different style. I hope you guys uh, give that a try when it lands here soon. And as far as Rob's observations, come back, find me. I'm going to be here. We will absolutely, most certainly, inevitably talk again real soon.